with you. Um, we're going to turn our attention now to Scripture. I did also want to mention that next week we have one combined service, so it's look just like the service we're having right now. And that's because we're having our missionaries come, the people that we sponsor both locally and globally, to be with us. And we're going to celebrate them. We're going to learn about them. We're going to try and inspire you to support them or become one of them, all of that good stuff. And so next week, please come and join us for Mission Sunday. It's going to be really wonderful. So I'm excited for it. As was mentioned, we're in a new series called With Grateful Hearts. And we're going to look at an unlikely candidate for gratitude this morning, a minor prophet named Habakkuk. I dare you to find that quickly in your Bible. Uh, he's a latter prophet, so if you need to get a Bible and go to the table of contents, I did it this morning. No shame in that. Um, and uh, we're going to read the end of Habakkuk as a way to reflect on gratitude and what God can do in the most unlikely of circumstances. I'll read it. You can listen along or follow along. It says this, starting at verse 17, chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Let me start with some background information on the book of Habakkuk. As I mentioned, he's a minor prophet. He lived in the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been attacked, and so the southern kingdom was thought to be a place that would never be attacked or destroyed. And yet that was the circumstance that Habakkuk found his people in. And he lived in a time of great injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of the Babylonians coming on the horizon. And unlike many of the other minor prophets who had a big critique of Israel, he actually took his critique, his lament, and brought it straight to God. And so what we read in just the three chapters of Habakkuk are really Habakkuk's um, question of Yahweh and then Yahweh's answer to his question, and then a response question, and another answer, and then finally a song of gratitude. And the first question that is raised by Habakkuk is this question, God, how can you let Israel act with such disobedience? Um, he's frustrated with what he sees in his community and the things that he knows that aren't right. And so he just brings it to God. God, why would you let this happen? Why, how could this possibly happen to your people? So God comes and he says something that would not have come at, uh, as good news first as an answer. God says, I'm actually bringing Babylon to hold the people of Israel accountable. And so as you can imagine that, brings another bigger question. 
God, Babylon is worse than Israel. Why would they be the ones that get to come and have victory in this moment? And so God answers again. God will eventually bring Babylon down just like he does with every violent nation. But in the meantime, Babylon is there to bring a message of what can happen to expose what can happen when decisions are made to live in one's own pride and when kingdoms are built on pride instead of on service to God. The decisions that are made uh, look like this. And God brings five woes that speak of what Babylon is, is about and what Babylon's in the future will look like. And the first two speak of unjust economic practices that happen in Babylon. Essentially, the wealthy were charging massive interest to exploit the poor. And then the second woe, I mean the third woe, the first two are on injustice, the third is on slave labor. And so uh, this would have been the ultimate uh, offense to the Jewish people, the Hebrews, who were once slaves, but now um, see Babylon, this uh, great power, this great empire, using people, treating human beings as animals and threatening them if they don't produce. And so this is a woe to God. God is offended by this practice. And this is in conjunction and connected to the irresponsible leadership that Habakkuk talks about where he says that people are suffering because of incompetent leadership where where the leaders are partying, having great displays of wealth, um, and that's all while people are in the streets struggling with very little. Finally, the ultimate woe is summarized in idolatry, meaning that money and power and national security have become the central place that the Babylonians have placed their allegiances, and so they become pawns in service to their own national empire. And this is all something that Habakkuk has taken notice of, that God is exposing in this time and saying, do not become like this nation And if you do, this is what will happen. So not a very good news message off the bat, right? This is Habakkuk learning that his time on earth uh, will be a time of great struggle, of great pain, um, that decisions have been made, and now the consequences of those decisions will be felt. And so as I said, the main summary we could look at at Habakkuk is this idea of what it looks like Uh, to be a proud person, uh, to be a proud nation, um, and the ways in which God desires faithfulness over pride. That pride ultimately leads to a woeful end, but interestingly, Habakkuk is able to do a reframe, one that has such power, has such ability to teach about the truth of who God is as Savior that it really has shaped and defined the New Testament church and the church that we currently live in now. Just through one verse about faithfulness, in Habakkuk 2.4 it says, 
that the just shall live by faith. And then this sentiment is echoed in the verses we just read. Chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. Even when all the fruit and the produce and all the flocks and the herds are destroyed and my very life is threatened, says Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in my God. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a mother of one of the uh, seven-year-olds on my soccer team. She just briefly had learned that I'm a pastor, and so she decided to give me her two-minute testimony. (laughs) And she told me that uh, she was living her life feeling like she was doing really well as a Christian, trying to earn and do everything that she could do in order to be a good person. And then one day she listened to a Tim Keller sermon where this phrase was used. Jesus came to save me from my damnable good works. And she said that that was the moment where the gospel truly revealed itself. And so I want us to think about pride in the context of our damnable good works. Right in the midst of this disaster, Right in the midst of this uh, moment for Habakkuk where everything he loved was going to ruin, the people he loved were making bad decisions, and his heart was breaking, comes one verse. One verse that makes its way into Romans, and makes its way into Galatians, and then makes its way into Hebrews, and is really the underpinning for the Romans chapter 8 series that we, did, we uh, looked at last, uh, few, the last few weeks, this theme, the just shall live by faith. Not only did it really uh, inform the New Testament writers, but then years later, it had a dramatic effect on a man named Martin Luther. You may know the story of Martin Luther's conversion. He was a young man, and so the story goes that he was walking one day in a storm, and a lightning bolt struck near him. And in that moment, he pledged to God that he would do whatever he had to do so that the wrath of God would not come upon him. And so he signed up to be an Augustinian monk, the most hardcore of all of the different forms of monasteries. There he lived a chaste life. He dedicated himself to poverty. Uh, The routine in the monastery was one of devotion and prayer and worship. Sometimes he would go three days with fasting. But Luther himself writes that in those moments of great devotion he still felt angry, angry at God, that somehow, even though he had done all of this work, all of these things, he had pledged himself to do whatever it took to not incur the wrath of God, that he felt frustrated, because in a way, no matter what he did, 
He, he knew that he could never earn his salvation. He could never do enough. It was never enough for him. And this came to a climax on a visit to Rome. Rome, to him, uh, was like paradise in his mind. He had never been there before, and so when he was invited, invited to go to see the Pope um, and to see uh, all that was going on in Rome, this great source of the Catholic Church, the, the, the place where everything was coming from in the Catholic Church and the teachings he was learning, uh, he, he visited. And when he got there, it wasn't what he thought it would be. In fact, in many ways, it looked to him more like the Babylon that we just read. It looked like a place where there was a lot of exploitation, where the poor were suffering in the streets, where uh, other leaders, where the clergy were benefiting uh, from their power. And they, they were exploiting the poor in the streets. And, and he was confused by this, but he still was going through the rituals. And so one of the things that he did was he went to a place uh, where it was viewed as the most holiest of places in all of Rome, the place that they said was Pilate's staircase that Jesus walked up for his trial. And the ritual in that time was that, uh, that pilgrims would come and they would, on their knees, with each step, pray a prayer of salvation, asking God to forgive them with each step as they climbed the stairs. And so the promise was that, that when they got to the top of the stairs, that they would actually feel like they were ultimately forgiven. Halfway through this process, Martin Luther had this realization that there was no prayer, there was no mode of prayer, no ritual if he got to the top of that, he wasn't going to feel any different than he did in the middle or before. And so he began to think on this verse. The just shall live by faith. That he found in Romans 1.17 says for this, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith by faith, and he thought on this for a very long time, and the right understanding of this verse changed everything for him. He writes, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteousness lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And so we see in these words the realization was that there was nothing that Luther could do. It was only by passively receiving salvation by faith that he learned that he could actually be saved. That there was nothing he could do, no good work that he could do that would bring about his salvation. That there was something that was freely given by God through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine one verse 
declared and understood and sang in the midst of a season where there was nothing going right, where there was only things going wrong. What Habakkuk learned in that season became the verse that changed everything for the church, for you and for me, as we understand our salvation and what faith can bring in each and every one of our lives. That somehow we can stand and declare with no evidence at all that God is good. Though we might not have what we uh, thought we would have at this point in our lives or be who we thought we would be at this point in our lives or maybe the world doesn't look the way that you thought it would look at this point in your life, that by simply understanding that humble faith can generate a seed, plant it in the ground that will bear fruit for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, for thousands of years, that will bring about salvation for millions and billions of people who needed to know this message, that there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. I love the way Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, irreligious people don't repent at all, and religious people repent only for their sins, but Christians repent of their righteousness. We need a deeper, more comprehensive repentance. How can we learn from one verse what this could mean today? For us. Sometimes I can fall under the belief that the only actions that are worth my time are the types of actions that are going to bring about a change in the world that I can see. And when I don't see that change externally, the temptation is to become discouraged, to want to give up, and to take no actions at all. But this is pride. This is pretense. Humility and faith call us into faithful action regardless of result or circumstance. And the faith of Habakkuk is that it does not matter if we get to see it or not. That we are planting trees for future generations. And that in the hands of God, what feels like defeat, what feels like the Babylonians closing in, is really all moving towards Millions of people coming to faith.
and sharing this message that is the essence of our faith. So I wonder this morning if part of your confession was to confess your own damnable good works and to just say, at the end of the day, I need a Savior. I cannot do anything to earn this. And wherever my heart is driven to think that by what I do or by what I don't do, that I deserve the favor of God, that you can let that break open for something sweeter and truer and more beautiful and more wonderful. The love of God can come straight in. And you can have communion with your Savior, knowing no matter what happens, that he is there with you. And so I pray that God would raise up our levels of faith and trust in this gospel message, this good news. And so if we have to stand alone, we stand alone and declare that even though I can't see it, maybe things go from bad to worse for our children and for the next generation of spiritual children, that you and I will be faithful, trusting that our broken, poured out lives, inspired by the love of Jesus Christ, could do more than we can ever imagine. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bring forward uh, all of us, um, all the good, all the bad, all the victories, all the defeats, all the discouragements, all of the hopelessness and despair, you would bring it forward and that you would show in the midst of it all, in the midst of uh, our whole life, that truly you are cultivating faith, that you are showing us what it means to trust you no matter what happens. And Lord, we say thank you for the way that you have brought this message to us, for the way that you have made this possible, Lord Jesus, through your death and resurrection. Lord, that you came so humbly and you said that you were a seed. Lord, that when you broke open, that you began to grow and flourish and bring about life and newness and goodness in our world and in us. Do that again today in our spirit, in our hearts, in our lives. We want to know you. We want to be with you now. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Will you stand and let's sing together.